2: Hello, and welcome to Processing, a podcast about the intersection between food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Uh, This week, we have an amazing guest on the show, uh, Anna Dunn. They are a poet, activist, author, veteran of the service industry, and they were kind enough to uh, come in and chat with us about a variety of different griefs and losses spanning from the 2016 election to the death of their very good friend. Um, and we're just so happy to have had them on. They're a good friend and a good human. And we really hope that you enjoy our conversation with Anna Dunn. So we've known each other for a bit. And we've chatted before. And actually, earlier today, when I was you know, getting all my research ready and together, I was like, we've had a conversation similar to this one before. And I was remembering a couple of things we've done. We worked on a piece for Lenny Letter together. Oh, yeah.
3: Yes. Around the time of the
2: election. Talk about grief. Talk about (laughs) grief, which actually I'd like to dip into a little bit later in this conversation. But I was remembering a talk that we had. I had started a blog that actually never went anywhere, and I was interviewing about a column that I thought was cool at the time called a pint of ice cream, about the proverbial pint of ice cream that people, uh, the trope of, you know, people like tucking into a pint of ice cream uh, as like healing and kind of going from there. I guess my point was that I wanted to talk to people kind of about this. Yeah. And so we connected and chatted about that. And I guess I've been circling around this concept for a while because we kind of got right into it. And somewhere in there, I'm like, we just really started talking about food and grief. Do you remember that combo at
3: all? I do remember it a little bit. I can't remember exactly where we went, though. Yeah. So maybe you can remind I, me.
2: I will <laughs> refresh your memory, actually. Um, so I was reading through this, and I was remembering a piece that you had wrote called Stronger by the Way of Breaking. And yeah. that was about the election. Yes. And I reread it and sent it to Bobby earlier today.
3: Enjoyed it a lot.
2: We both loved oh, it. Oh, thanks. And it was incredible. Uh, do you you want to talk about that piece at all? Sure,
3: yeah. I, I mean, I think that what I was trying to get at in that piece is that I feel like the election is a is the um, culmination of, of suffering. And that uh, allowing for or acknowledging different kinds of suffering is kind of like the only way that I can find a peaceful kind of place uh, within a country like ours, which has a complicated history and a complicated present right and a complicated future. Yeah. So um I believe that piece was about driving across the country after the election and yeah. um having encounters with people who I typically wouldn't have and kind of like acknowledging that our lives are very different. And um yeah.
2: Yeah. Which is I think Uh, an interesting thing and Bobby you would know a lot about this because you see so many different people who are experiencing grief from all different walks Mm -hmm. of life and I know that you deal with people of different political backgrounds Mm -hmm. which can be difficult and all kinds of things and I guess the commonality we have such a commonality in food right and then there's also such a commonality in grieving and when you are grieving you have the opportunity what I loved about the piece you wrote was the compassion that you had even for those people Mm -hmm. who had you know, voted for Trump and their reasoning why, and like you're heartbreaking for them, and I thought that was incredible. Uh, that kind of empathy was beautiful, and that's something that you deal with all the time as well, right, Bobby?
4: It's true. I certainly remember after the election and having all my clients who I care about deeply, and really recognizing more where their political bends were, and it was very um, it was challenging for me to stay open in my heart because I was grieving so deeply at that time, mm. as we all were, so bitterly, really and it was I had to really struggle to keep my heart open but of course I did (laughs)
3: yeah yeah I had an experience right after um the election where I was campaigning for my little brother Hugh who is a city councilman in New Bedford Massachusetts and I was out by myself kind of walking around a town I I had some familiarity with because I'm from Massachusetts so I didn't feel totally alien I mean as kind of like A trans queer person wandering the um, Americas. It can feel a little nerve wracking. And I um, got this address on my list and I looked, I found the house and on the house was a Trump sticker on the, on the car. And I thought like, oh man, here we go. Um, and there was something else kind of off about the house. There was like an, the name of the person who owned the house was different. It said like Jason's way on the house on a mm-hmm. little sign. The Trump sticker was on the car. Yeah. I like knocked on the door. I was, my, my heart was racing mm-hmm. and the person opened the door and said, Oh, you must be looking for Hugh. And I said, uh, you know, I was like flabbergasted. I said, Oh yeah, I guess I am. Um, but do you know Hugh? And he was like, yeah, he's right here. And I was like, wow, this is getting weirder and weirder. And my brother was sitting on the couch in these people's homes. And Hmm. I like went and sat next to him and he looked kind of like shook. And I kind of felt something charged in the air. And I thought, what if this is political? What if this is Trump-ness? What what is this? And I, you know, there was something strange about the room too. There was like um, a chessboard that looked like it hadn't been touched. There was a sneaker on the on a like shelf and there were like these pictures of this young man and what i came to finally realize was that these people had lost their son he Mm. was like a fireman or something and he had died in a motorcycle accident the dad had asked him to come over to play chess that day and they took Mm. took his house and they live in his house so they're kind of like living in this mausoleum Mm. and it was interesting because i've you know like feeling that heaviness and that suffering I could see that my brother was like a little flummoxed and like so was I but they were so welcoming and so like generous and also offered us cake they were like wow do you want some of this cake and I you know like I said yes because you can't say no even though I was like too nervous to eat because I was afraid of a certain kind of hate that I anticipated that wasn't present or something you know that was actually not in the room so those types of like, stealing ourselves up for something to go terribly wrong, and then to be confronted with some other, a different thing that's gone terribly wrong is something I think about a lot. Was
4: your brother there to provide support for them? Is that why he was there?
3: Well, he was campaigning, so they had invited him in, and we had, I guess we had a double list, so I was behind him. I didn't know we were kind of like, so they recognized me as looking like him. Right. And he was just sitting there listening to their story, and Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it was... It was interesting.
2: It's incredible, and it's one of those things. It's funny you talk about someone offering cake. Like, it grounds you. I think when you experience, Mm -hmm. we are all so, you know, divided at this point, really. And it takes an experience like that, and the little kind of things where you're like, oh, everybody offers you, you know, Quote unquote cake, right? Or something, right? <laughs> right? Or like something to like, and I'm going to bring up something you actually said later in another piece that you wrote that kind of touches on this again. But there's something about like the humanity and that experience when you kind of can just go into that little bubble where like nothing else exists We're except for human being issues. people, right? Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that 99% of people really have that, right? There, of course, are a very small percentage of extremists in the world that really it's very difficult to find that with.
3: No cake in their house. No
2: cake at all. (laughs) Never seen cake. Gluten-free. Yeah. Um, Yeah, allergic to all cakes. But, you know, it is within that time you see that. And I think, like, you know, I was talking to a friend recently about if your house is on fire, God forbid, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the fire department comes over, you're not – Caring if they're trump supporters they're there to help you live, yeah. you know what I mean, and there's like that moment if they do help you live, you bond and it's just like it doesn't matter for right, a right.
4: and i don't and know that's a challenge I face every day because out of the fifty people I see a week i'm I'm realizing more and more you know i don't know if forty percent of them are probably very different than I am politically, and yet I meet them first in their heart, and I meet them in their stories right, and so it doesn't shift and then when they leave I say to myself how how did this just happen how am I connecting because I feel so different than them on moral issues on really Mm. important issues so how is it that we can still connect in our hearts
2: well I mean I think it's through hopefully as we move forward if we can which I hope we can it's about finding that commonality that bond that little tiny sliver what is it called when the two the circles... The Venn diagram. The Venn diagram mm-hmm. of, of being a person. Yeah.
3: I mean, I think also it really has to do with forgiveness. Like that being something that people move forward with in their... You know, I I have a lot of anger and I I am facing that more and more. But what I do with that anger and how I treat it is what's going to allow me to connect to other people or to not. You know, like I... Um have been teaching a class in Rikers Island. And w- in that class, I had this one wonderful experience where these two older ladies um, described like a barbecue that they wanted to be in. And it was like the most alive I'd seen them in months. You know, I'm in class with them Tuesday and Thursday night. And, um, you know, like we've had moments of joy, but mostly it's pretty pretty hard. And also I wanted to teach there because I wanted to know what it would be like to face what friendship and forgiveness looks like for people who have, with people who have done terrible things Mm -hmm. and to understand why they do them and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And so like I trying to figure out more and more how to get people to forgive each other in order to create, in order to acknowledge commonality Mm -hmm. because you know, mm, I don't know. mm, It's an unfinished thought. I'll come back. If I could
4: add something to that in the Buddhist concept of forgiveness it's also about self-forgiveness, and mm. it begins there. So it's the forgiveness of self and the compassion for self as well as for yeah. the other. And you do both at the same time, back and
3: forth. Yeah, and back and forth. that's interesting.
2: Yeah. So going back to this story that mm-hmm. you wrote, Stronger by the Way of Breaking, you had a lot a sentence in there which really hit me hard then and did again as I was rereading it, which is that you say the heart pump is the only pump that grows stronger by the way of breaking. Which I think is extremely beautiful, and in experiencing grief of all sorts in my own life, it's something that really I feel very strongly about. Yeah. And I think for me, in terms of what we're talking about now with food and grief, and um, I want to kind of dial into how that happens. So, like, how do you how do you mean? <laughs> yeah, how do you mean it? <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah.
3: Um, I think I mean that. Um, only by way of vulnerability, do, do, does do, can something become stronger, and that that is kind of like part of the idea that like forgiving, forgiving people, forgiving oppressive systems, forgiving oneself for like you know x, y, and z is the only way that like something can be built on top of something or continue to become more pliable, more um, open. So I'm not, yeah. Well, again, to add to that,
4: um, I have a lot of quotes on my wall in my office. Mm. And one of them is from Hemingway. And he said that we we grow stronger in the broken places. Mm. So I began to look at that. And I looked up and found that when we break a bone, that bone actually becomes stronger. Because it has Mm. has to keep healing and knitting and healing and knitting. Right. So it's a wonderful physical example of what you're talking
3: about. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting the way that the body can intuitively do things the mind (laughs) can't. That's to like really tease out.
4: Right.
3: Yeah. Right. The mind
4: sabotages and Mm -hmm. the body knows. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Um, So, yeah, I really, I just, again, the essay, the call for compassion um, and love and how, I don't know, how we show and feel and give and accept and deny love and when we're in pain you know, because yeah. everyone has such a different kind of way of being able to do that. Um, I think some people are in pain. I think the way that you were able to deal with your pain in this essay was incredible. And your grief about, you know, a broken nation and a broken heart and, uh, and fear. Um, and I think that, you know, in terms of food and what we're talking about today, how I kind of saw that play into just what I'm interested in in the intersection of food and grief. Um, food being like a nourishing gift that we can give to ourselves and others and connecting back to what you're saying about when you and your brother were in the home of these people, the, that common thing that almost exists regardless of where you're at and just a compassionate handshake, a hug.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: Um, so also in the article you quoted your friend Millicent and I don't know if this was like a direct quote taken from something she wrote or you're paraphrasing, but I'm going to repeat it because it kind of reminded me, um, of what people do for each other when uh, you're bringing food to someone's house or you're helping them out. So she was speaking about being um, walking people to their abortion mm. appointments. And you, uh, you and she had written, uh, the best thing to do in escorting a person to a health clinic is to offer focus, to make eye contact and go meet them if necessary. If the sidewalk is flanked by people humming hymns and shouting "murderer," focus on me, look at me. I will get you into the doors because when you woke up this morning, you knew you were coming here, but you probably didn't think this was going to happen. And in terms of uh, that just kind of hit with me like how – we can do the same thing when you show up for someone with a, when that last line, you probably didn't know this was going to happen. I feel like anytime you're grieving, you lose a friend, you lose a family member, your heart is broken. Like you just aren't prepared for that level of pain and what that feels like. And so the focus on me, I was thinking of that. And then people bring over a lasagna or like my friend the other day, like I'm going through a breakup and a couple of other things that are really tough. And she just called me and she was like, Hey, can I order you? Some dinner. Yeah. Like just to take your, you know, like that kind of look at me. Like, yeah, yeah. I really liked, I thought that was very powerful.
3: Yeah. I, she did write that. She wrote an essay about that um, experience of being a person who walked people through um, picket lines outside of um, Planned Parenthood. And I, that resonates with, for me a lot. And in fact, you know, you did this for me. You came and brought me meatballs after (laughs) my top surgery. That's true. And that was a really that experience that I went through um receiving support around my transitioning was radical in my mind in a way because it showed me a lot about how I acted in a way or I acted from a place that thought that was um entrenched in this idea that like if I Could just make everything happen on my own. It would be okay, and I wouldn't need anyone. I wouldn't need anything, and I would be fine. And that's indirect. That's really the opposite of what I'm trying to tease out with vulnerability and with forgiveness, which is that, you know, like I the day before the surgery, like had or a couple days before, had people over, threw my back out, couldn't tell anybody had you know needed somebody to walk the dog and it was like three days before i was actually going to need people to make the food and walk the dog and i was like this is going to be really difficult this is going to be really hard but i had um wonderful people in my life who like just showed up and brought food and walked the dog and took care of the dishes and cleaned like the kitchen it was just like you know like beyond um just that i had wanted to do, I needed to do the surgery my entire, essentially my entire life. I, this other thing happened where I looked around and I felt like, you know, like here's Zari, here's Millicent, here's Marissa, here's Katie, here's London, here's Sven, you know, here's my brother and my dad and my mother, like, and they're all here just to help me because I need, I need help. And like that allowing for, that was such a gift. I mean, like I didn't, and I really didn't see that coming either. Like that's, Part of the, what that statement is about, like, you probably didn't know this was going to happen is also, like, you probably didn't know somebody was going to be here to hold your hand and make eye contact with you while you walk through this, like, really, you know, that, you know, the people who are picking against Planned Parenthood are in pain. They're in a lot of pain. Yeah. And, it, they're, and it's hard. And it's dangerous. Yeah.
4: You know, it kind of reminds me of that concept, I'll walk with you for a while. Yeah. Because in a way, I imagine you went through that on your own. Yeah. you had these people who loved you and cared about you and walked with you for periods of time. Yeah. And I think my experience in working with hospice is that even family members who sat with their loved ones to the end, they couldn't go with them the whole way. They were yeah. just there for a period of time. They walked with them for a while. Yeah. And it means everything. Yeah.
2: And I really like how you said that that you didn't know that this probably didn't know this was going to happen and flipped it to mean the support as right. well because you really can't prepare yourself for grieving. You can play it over in your head a million times, but the highs and lows of it, because in grieving, I think there really is a lot of incredible highs if you allow there to be. And like these little moments of whether it's just that you see the sun in a different way than you ever did before, or that somebody reached out to you and you never knew that like you could experience gratitude or love in that way, or that pain could go that dark and deep, you know, it's the kind of unexpected and, When to have people there for you through that, just to sit there or to actually bring things or a hand to hold. And sometimes it's from a stranger. Like, you know, people who walk other folks to Planned Parenthood are generally strangers to each other. And sometimes in your grieving in all kinds of ways, I feel like it's strangers who step in, just someone who holds the door for you or someone who like just can tell you're kind of in pain and gives you a smile. Like, I don't know. I I think it's interesting.
3: Yeah. I think sometimes that, That gift of the stranger feels like so much bigger because it seems random or you haven't done any work for it or you haven't like, you don't, you don't know you deserve it or something, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think of an example. I have this kind of like minor one, which, you know, for the, like the first time I went to the beach without my shirt on, this person like nodded and smiled at me. You know, I was afraid people were going to look at me and then Mm -hmm. I was like, but I guess that's why I'm here also to just be free in the ocean in this way and that like just acknowledgement was like so kind of breathtaking to some degree totally yeah
2: it's huge actually i mean yeah. it seems small but it really like isn't small yeah. at all it's it's huge i had an experience uh after my dad passed away and i was kind of just like in another planet i felt very alone bobby and my dad were divorced, but my mom came down to help and, you know, mm-hmm. we planned a small memorial and we went to Trader Joe's to buy stuff to make some of his favorite foods. And I was kind of like on autopilot, like I'd have moments of breakdowns but I was generally just really trying to get through it. <clears throat> and so we're in Trader Joe's we're buying all this stuff. And as you guys know, people in Trader Joe's tend to kind of chat it up with you. I think it's part of their thing. They get <laughs> yeah. into it. And I'm a very uh-huh. honest person. Like, I'm not the kind of person that yeah. someone's like, what are you buying all this food for? I was like, well, my dad just died uh, yesterday, right. you know, and, the, and a lot of people will shy away from that. Yeah. And the guy at Trader Joe's is like, well, my dad died, like, two years ago and, like, started telling out his experience and then, like, gave me, like, a really earnest, like, wanted, welcomed hug at the end. And he's like, you know what? It's really going to be okay. And it's really sweet you're doing this for your dad. And, like, that was so touching. And, like, I didn't know I needed that. And it felt... So good, and part of me, my initial reaction was to be like, "Oh, you wanted to know when I'm buying all this mozzarella for? Fuck you! My dad died. How do you like that? Now, what are you gonna? What's your next question? You know, I had my like my uh, quills up, but it ended up being a really like nice exchange.
4: And that's when we share our vulnerability, and we all have experienced loss. Yeah. So the stories of loss are a way that we can connect with strangers.
3: Yeah. You know, it's amazing. Something comes to mind which I forgot about which. When I was in high school, I worked at this Pratt and Abbott, a dry cleaning's place with these older ladies who were amazing. One was named Lorraine, and she was always dancing, but she had a bad ankle. But and I was like the kid. She would like let me like sleep underneath the like spinny clothes sometimes during my shift. (laughs) But one night I was there, and this person came in, and the person said, "You know, did you know Steph?" And I said, "Like Steph who?" And he said, "Steph, whatever her last name was." and it was my friend who had moved to Pennsylvania and I was like a junior in high school. She had just moved like three months before. And he said, well, she died in a car accident yesterday and I'm here to like see her family or tell her family or something. And, um, it was like before cell phones and I was felt, you know, in this funny way, more connected, but disconnected. I didn't know what to do except I became hysterical, which, um, it's funny because I don't, I don't, and the times after that, that I've experienced loss, I don't think I became hysterical, but I was in this moment. I was like yeah. a teenager. And at this in this moment, a, a nun walked in. And and oddly, my mother, like just right after the nun. But the nun walked in and said, and, said, and I was just like crying. And she said, yeah, you know, whatever it is, it's not always going to feel like this. <laughs> wow. And I was like, okay. I like heard her, you yeah. know. And then my mom showed up and was like, what is going on but it was so like wow. you know i i don't i didn't i don't have like a experience with religion and believing and things like that and it's something i'm kind of searching for in my life but in but sometimes i can see it like it can flash in front of me that there's some connectivity around believing in things that has to do with like kindness and alleviating suffering totally yeah
2: that's an incredible Memory. That's a wild (laughs) story. It's It's so so it's very cinematic. Honestly, it's like out of a Wes Anderson movie or something. Wow, that's incredible. Um, We're going to take just a really quick break, and then when we come back, I have some questions relating exactly to what we're talking about.
1: This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street, just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com.
2: Based on what we were just talking about, um, I know my feelings on this being in the service industry. You've been in the service industry for a really long time, specifically working for Andrew Tarlow's restaurant group of Diner, Marlo, Roman's, mm-hmm. etc., which is a group of restaurants that, generally speaking, has a like-minded clientele, at least politically. I could assume yeah, yeah. that 90% yeah. of the people that come in there are on the same page. Uh, we react to certain events in the world. Similarly, and then specifically, people that come into restaurants have their own needs on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, the needs, uh, different griefs, breakups, lots, death, of, lots of needs, lots, lots of. <laughs> lots of needs, and some of the needs are pretty banal. Mm-hmm. But like yeah. some of them are really extreme. And I notice, like even from working at my own restaurant and doing in-home stuff, you sometimes meet people who really have a strong individual need. Like people yeah. will come in and share, and especially at the bar, yeah. right? Um, and then in a larger sense, I remember the day of the election going into dinner at Marlon's Sons and feeling like I needed to be taken care of and also sensing this very large, heavy grief in the room and remembering that everyone who was working there and who was there and Andrew himself and Nicole, I remember being, she was at Marlowe and just having to take care of a lot of people, but it didn't seem like a burden. It seemed like a, like a warm hug. Yeah. How do you feel about that?
3: I think that that is one of the more compelling things about a restaurant, um, about what a restaurant can do. I um, And I think that that, for me, is when the, that kind of work is most gratifying or um, meaningful. And I mean, it all does center around taking care of somebody. I don't typically kind of like make that a larger thing than it is to mm-hmm. some degree, but sometimes it really does kind of like surpassed those things I had um one Friday night I was working a woman came in by herself to have dinner and she was visibly upset she was crying and somebody um so the host I think Katie or maybe Jillian the server both kind of talked to her a little bit and she had had this horrific day in which one of her students was um killed oh in a kind of like really super tragic um, case of mistaken identity outside of a bodega I think in Queens and um, she was a teacher and this this kid was hurt in her class and it was just terrible but what I you know watched was like these people who are working there taking care of her and by the time that she was leaving something had shifted. You know, like the thing about you can learn about grief, but you can't not you can't learn about it in a way that makes it that you can't you don't know, feel the thing that's gonna come down. Yeah. So I kind of feel like you can just move it, you know, the needle one way or another for somebody else for a period of time and that's the best that you can do. And she did leave um a little bit better seeming, you know? She. But, yeah, you know, and, and an odd tie in to that story I was in a training session for Rikers Island uh, and was in this meeting room with this guy who worked with the kid who killed the, the mistaken identity kid. Oh my gosh. And he, you know, like he said, here's the thing that kid doesn't seem like he could or would murder anyone. And he was like that, you know, sometimes things just happen on a particular day in a particular way and it's a nightmare. But like that kid also deserves this kind of like connection and forgiveness and, um, kind of life about that is, that is about living and not about dying, which is what I think yeah. being in jail is about.
2: Absolutely. But That's so impactful and so yeah.
3: true.
4: You know, good just going back to the first story about the, um, Rest, the restaurant, mm-hmm. the woman came in, she went to the restaurant that night. Yeah. That's what she yeah. chose to do. Yeah. There was some sense of comfort that she would yeah. imagine she would feel there, whether it was the food or the people or the environment or. Right. And I think that uh, some
2: restaurants provide that. And some restaurants are places to
4: go eat food. Right? Yeah. You know right. what I mean?
2: And yeah. some places that are just places to go eat food, maybe to us, can actually be that it, just because it's special and it's just like a little bit of a getaway or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think the places that I think of as being places to be nurtured are fancy or not fancy. I think they are, come in all shapes and sizes and yeah areas of the country. Um, I don't know, but I think...
3: I suspect that they're lived in in a certain way. Yes. I don't exactly know what that means, but I that people that it becomes a space, a third space, like a church or, you know, something that where people are, you know, spending their lives yeah, there. Yeah,
4: especially the people that work there.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Did you know that when you started working for uh, – at Marlow, you started working at Marlow first, mm-hmm. right, as a priestess. Did you know that? Did you think no. that was possible? No, no, no. Okay. I had
3: no con- – no, I had zero. I lied and said I was a morning person. I was, like, <laughs> late all the time. I could barely make coffee. But sure. um No, but what I did start to notice was that I felt more connected to other people there. You know, like I had other jobs that were, like, lovely and I liked, but I found myself forging relationships in that job as a barista. um, And that I guess, you know, I'm always questioning like my (laughs) decisions, but I it was like an instinctual thing that I stayed there and that I started to work there more and that. I started to be able to have a more creative life there um, and I think that that I don't know exactly what nurtures that or what makes that happen but it was really lucky for me yeah.
2: yeah it's a place for anyone listening who hasn't been to any of these restaurants there's something that came out that for me at least because it was in my formative time of learning about restaurants as a young 20 something and mm-hmm. really understanding what I liked when I didn't like and um, it really felt like there was a lot of heart, and yeah, you have yeah. been there since the beginning. And so, by that math, part of the reason there's a lot of heart in that place, and you know all of the things that have come out of it, like the diner journal, uh, you're, you know, partly responsible for. Yeah. And I will say, like in my own. Uh, research about what I wanted to create in my own restaurant, it really wasn't about, oh, I really like how they do their bread service here. I really like
3: that (laughs) changes all the time. You know, I
2: I was like, I really like what it feels like here. Yeah. You know, and I feel like this too. Like I feel like a person who's authentic and like, doesn't want to just make this buttoned up thing with a menu cover on. And this is that, and this is how you make this. And I learned that from Mm -hmm. being a patron of those places And one of, I mean, really the most profound takeaway, and I had so many highs and lows, a lot of very dark, deep lows with owning my own business. Um, But the thing I wouldn't trade anything about and the the best part to ever come out of it was that heart, was seeing a person come in and knowing that they they needed you, even though they didn't maybe even know they needed you. You know, and like... Uh, in the good times and the bad, I remember when gay marriage was legalized, we had a huge party and, and people were so excited and so happy. And when, you know, different awful things happened as as a society, we were together. And I don't know, the, yeah. that night of the election was so profound to be there in that room. And, like, everyone was just crying, but it felt warm and safe. Like, we were... Being taken care and of, it community. was a really... Yeah, it really yeah. was a huge sense yeah. of community. It was amazing. So similarly, I think... I just want to add I, oh, no, one more ahead.
4: quote. Please, please. My favorite quote. Go ahead, Pavi. I love quotes. Yes. <laughs> Viktor Frankl, who I mention a lot, Victor Frankl wrote A Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Holocaust survivor, a psychiatrist that couldn't write while he was in concentration camp, but wrote beautifully afterwards. Mm. And one of the things he said is, survival is a community event. Oh, wow. So That's I think beautiful. that concept of a restaurant you know, really wonderful, heartfelt restaurant being a community. Yeah. And it helps us survive. Absolutely. Life, all the things, the small things, mm. the big things, everything. That's really And I admire Zara, you live in Brooklyn, and it's so different in Brooklyn than Long Island where I live. But you have a restaurant around the corner, and I know it's your... Place and you bring everything there, right? Yeah. You bring all your feelings that, that totally. happen in a day, or any day, or any Frankie's, week. And, yeah.
2: yeah, I'm there all the time, and it, it absolutely is more. It's not the no offense to Frankie's not really the food. It's just you know, <laughs> it's the it's the space community. I think that um, there is something very similar about being a writer that mm-hmm. ties into that same sense of providing um, shelter for people when they need it and support and I don't know if it's as obvious as it is with a restaurant but it kind of seems like there's a parallel when I was thinking about that and I was like you know what writing and especially the way that the kind of work that you do that I've read Mm -hmm. at least kind of provides that same thing The some of the most profound things that you've written kind of are about loss and grief and pain and community and love and uh, that's also a safe place for someone to go I think in a time of trouble how do you feel about that?
3: Yeah, I wonder, um, you know, I think sometimes my relationship with restaurants is um, kind of like in equal measure to to writing because writing can feel really isolating. But, and, you know, being in a restaurant can feel overwhelmingly social. But what's similar to me is, well, in the writing I try to take off the things that um, cloak me so that people feel less alone. So if I can... Um, say something write something down that is kind of interior to some degree then that person can who's reading it can relate to it and therefore feel less isolated and i don't know how i do that in the restaurant setting but i do think i'm i'm after, i'm kind of chasing it in the restaurant setting which is to say that If you can, and, you know, to some degree, I think I'm trying to offer this more to the people who are working in restaurants than the ones who are being, going to them, because I think there's a difficulty in the work, especially the front of the house in which you can feel as though there's an element of servitude or being bossed around or somebody else's need taking over yours. And, um, I just want to encourage people to recognize each other as humans constantly and, um, and typically, if you, they can do that, if everybody can do it, then everybody has a good time. Totally.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
3: But uh, it's not always possible. No, yeah. no. And we're only in charge of ourselves.
4: So right. Yeah, we, we can yeah. really do it ourselves. That agreement, the
2: outcome. That agreement yeah. can be a hard one to uphold sometimes. <laughs> I Personally, I never had any, like, I have no patience for that kind of thing. And I guess <laughs> seeing that, like, no one was going to fire me, like, when right. stuff like that would happen, I would sometimes pick people's plates up and <laughs> ask them to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't recommend. But, but you I'm know, you're saying.
4: too busy to think about, boy, what's this person going through? Yeah. What's right. going on with them? Or
3: right. What has their loss it, been? It's
2: them? so immediate, though. I mean, compassion, benefit of the doubt is always so important. But in that setting, sometimes you're just like, <laughs> it
3: can be really difficult. I find that sometimes if you create space for, in a way around somebody who's having a thing in a restaurant, they can find them their way towards a more peaceful or in more, like, more pleasure, more happiness. Right. And that usually involves kind of, like, separating the, like, different dynamics that they're experiencing as a customer or whatever, or as a server. But, yeah. um, yeah.
2: Who was the person – so I remember you saying, and you were just telling us before the show, but I remember this from previous talks we've had, that you didn't really grow up in a food-centric family necessarily. Mm -hmm. Who was the person that – how did you – who is your role model in this way for, you know, being interested in food, for being interested in using food as part of healing and writing about it and and creating this sense of community in restaurants? Do you have one or a couple people who did that for you?
3: Well, that's a good question. I, um, I mean, definitely I think people like Caroline Fidanza and Millicent Suarez and Andrew Tarlow, who all seemed to know about it way before I did. You know, like <laughs> yeah. I was like – Um, I feel really lucky that I got to be the editor of the Diner Journal for 10 years because that process, which was essentially making an independent magazine at the restaurants, um, kind of like helped me learn about all the different ways people had relationships to food and to like creativity and to livelihood and to pleasure and to like presentness. And those, you know, and those are becoming more clear to me as like something that can stave off darkness or despair or something that like being present to a vegetable. I mean, it sounds ridiculous and I don't mean it in like a twee way, but like just having some experience with something that is of the natural world. I mean, for me, mostly as a young, very alienated queer person, I um, gravitated towards adopting dogs, but that did the Mm -hmm. same thing for me. Like I would then have to go out into a field with Bird. My dog's name was Bird. Yeah. And, you know, sit in the field with her. And because she wanted that, I was able to access some sort of peace through that. And, like, so watching, like, people who do have this relationship to food find connectivity and presentness in making and considering kind of, like, the earth and the world and all the ways that, like, we damage and flourish flourish in it is kind of, like... Um, was cut through the restaurant group so that is yeah. that is kind of where it came from but we talk a lot about what you're saying in our show mm-hmm.
4: which is it's almost like if you think of the scales and so in one part of the scale there's all the losses and suffering that we have and and on the other part so in other words all the joys and all the pleasures of nature and food and connection and presentness doesn't really take away no its and they go yeah. together so that the scales feel more balanced
3: yeah, that reminds me. I mean, I feel like Mary Oliver's work does a lot mm-hmm. of that work. The one in particular about the box of darkness and how that was a gift too is really interesting and hard to accept, you know. But also has has some deep resonance in it. But
4: uh, Mary Oliver, I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, um,
2: so you had wrote another very beautiful essay about a friend that you had lost. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the experience with this friend. And then there's a couple things I want to just sure. chat with you about within the essay, but can you just tell us a little bit about this yeah. specific
3: loss? This, um, I had, you know, I'm trying to think about how to talk about people who have passed and not in the past tense, which is kind of, um, confusing, but Jesse, uh, was a very sweet kind of, young queer person who lived um, in this house that I've lived in on and off with my ex-partner and my very good friend and his older sister, Patty. So he was struggling with um, lots of things and we were trying to support him as as best we could. And he died one day um, and it was really, really, really the worst thing I could imagine in that moment. I was in the house when he passed away, or I suspect I was, because I was in the backyard with the dogs, and his sister Patty came home and found him. Um, And, you know, I did all the things that one does to themselves, like wishing I had, blaming myself because I'm always a late person, or what if I had been in the kitchen when he walked upstairs, I could have talked to him about something, you know, like... Katie, my, my ex also really put herself through that. And we, and Patty, and we all, you know, we got to sit with him for a little while before the ambulance came and that was pretty, um, meaningful for me. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't, and I still can't really make sense of it. And I'm still, I have a lot of, um, I don't know, despair, feelings I can access around that. Um, It tied into this food thing in a strange way for me, which was that I went to go find his wallet and his backpack. I found these little scones in his backpack that he had gotten that morning. And it just um, tore me apart because I guess I thought it was like his, I thought you don't get scones if you don't want to continue living, you know? Yeah. And. Yeah,
2: it's. That's very, that was one of the things that you wrote that I found to be the most impactful. And uh, I have recently written a piece about my father and actually two pieces. And one was about feeding him his last meal. And I had cooked for my dad for like 10 years while he was battling cancer. Mm. And when he was in the hospital, I knew he was really dying. I had just finished this piece about making him a roast beef sandwich. And I would always cook for him because knowing that I had to cook for him meant that he had food to eat. Right. 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 And uh, you know, if I made a whole lasagna that was like thirty slices that he'd right. have to eat, so that's thirty more days that he'll live. Yeah. And then I made one roast beef sandwich and he died the next day. Oh my god. But there right. is something that it really, really, really like resonated with me when you wrote that part about finding the scones, like, well he certainly intended on living and that's
3: yeah. Well, it's a false it's a fa- it's a false truth too, yeah. because I I can't tell, I don't know. And you know, just because you may or may not, um, be considering suicide or have suicidal ideation or something doesn't mean that you don't also eat or that you don't also try really hard not to have it one day and succeed in not having it or succeed in not acting on it or succeed in not doing drugs or drinking or, you know, like there are are a thousand ways that we damage ourselves and some of them are riskier than others. And some Mm -hmm. of them are more linear, and some of them are less. So it's, it's a comforting thought and it's an uncomfortable and it's not, it's an uncomforting thought at the same time, because it's, you know, it's also, it's hard to know, or at least I struggle a lot with, um, acknowledging that our lives are chaotic in a way that cannot be, uh, cannot really be safe. That can't be held, um, in this like way that can be accountable or something like, and also you have to stave off that, that thinking to, in order to continue because otherwise you would be totally terrified of what, yes. <laughs> what could happen next. Of course. Um, yeah. So it's like
4: operating in two different levels at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Living and dying at the same time. Right. <sighs> so you had wrote in this,
2: in this essay you wrote, I'm going to just read from it quickly mm-hmm. pertaining to this scones. Um, You said, uh, what I didn't know was that he was buying drugs from someone at the bakery he used to work at. And that's why when I sent the police downstairs to look for his wallet, instead I found three small scones lined up in brown paper bag. I can't say exactly. When I saw the scones, I was reminded of Raymond Carver's short story, A Small Good Thing. I don't think I was capable of minding anything in that moment, but I did know I would never forget finding them there, nestled on top of his work shirt, what I thought as a what I thought of as kind of comforting. You have heart-wrenching testimony to his intention of living. What does that mean exactly? I thought the scones meant he didn't want to die. I think maybe that's what I thought, think about food, about eating, in that way, very, simple about, very simply about living. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the story because I didn't put the the short story that you're talking yeah, about, yeah. Raymond Carver, but yeah. I thought it was beautiful.
3: Um, I, do you mind? Yeah, talking sure. I thought yeah. a little bit. Um, it's funny. I came to the story because of the movie <laughs> shortcuts, oh. which, um, Wait, Mark, who's in that? So many people. Tom Waits is in it. Right. Um, Lily Taylor, I think is in it. Lily Tomlin there. It's like a huge cast. It's Robert Altman. Robert film. Altman. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Um, but I grew up loving Raymond Carver short stories, so I had always kind of I've had his words in my mind, you know, for a long time. But um, in the story, well, in the movie, it's the Sisters Baker played by Lyle Lovett, which I also love. Oh yeah, that Lyle
2: Lovett, that hair. Yeah. yeah.
3: So the story is of chaos and humanness to some degree, which is that it's the story of like a little boy who gets hit by a car is his um, on his walk home from school and he doesn't go to the hospital I don't think he even tells anybody what happened but he goes home and he lies down and then his mother has is kind of like a type A and has ordered a cake for him for his birthday which is the next day and he doesn't want to worry anybody I'm you know I kind of I haven't read it that recently but this is what right. I remember yeah and he falls asleep and they take him to the hospital and the mother and the father are by his side for what feels like days on shifts like going back and changing their clothes and the person, the baker, who's made the cake, just feels abandoned by the people who are supposed to come pick up the cake for the kid, and he's having a bad time in his life, so he's obsessively calling them. And he, the couple, goes home, and you know, like I think she eventually figures out it's the, it's the baker who's calling and being pretty nasty on the phone, and right. then um, the kid dies, which is really tragic. And they go home, and they kind of like don't know what to do. So they and they like, march down to the baker's office to kind of, like, take out their rage on the world at this guy who's harassing them. And somehow he, like, he understands what's happened to them and he switch it switches really quickly. He, like, offers them these, like, hot rolls that he's just made or something. And he says, eating is a small good thing. And there's just such, mm. like, peace in that yeah. story that is so much about chaos and pain and suffering. Um, and I, you know, like... I didn't think about the story that day. I couldn't think about anything. But I did, I knew the scones were going to stay in my mind and, that, and eventually that they came together in that, in that way. They were like, it was a signal to me finding the scones. Brings us back to cake. Yeah, it does. And then
2: another part of the essay that I really loved uh, you write Baking has always seemed to me a kind of alchemy, a structure, a structural feat, sweetness and density, meant to satisfy and make dizzy, a peace offering, a celebration, an indulgence, sustenance, something we sink into. Or after the apple comes the cake. Making cake is not unlike mixing plaster, creating something that will harden, fill in, patch up the pain, maybe. The smell of sugar in motion, flour binding, fat and water, rising, filling. I really love that. I thought it was Thanks. beautiful. And I actually wanted to ask um, in relation to that... You right, patch up the pain. It made me think: Does the patch stick? Because we think of a patch, mm. right, as something that then, like, you kind of take off, or maybe it falls off. But does does a patch of that kind, like, stick? Does it stick? No,
3: down? but no patch sticks. No, no patch sticks. Yeah, <laughs> that's the we agree on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that the <clears throat> what I'm I think what I'm trying to get at is like this this essay centers around this crack in the in the room that Jesse died in that I. I wake up in that room every day and I look at the crack and I try to make it different than it is, which is to, I imagine it as lightning. And then, and lightning, I guess my experience of grief was is similar to the lightning in a certain way, which is that it, when it hits, it's undeniable. And it's like, it's electric and it's a nightmare. (laughs) And I also know that it's going to go and I have to remember that it's going to go. Um, so, so in a way, I was I'm you know just trying to fill in the the like the strikes with something you know it, lightning is light there is like something in it that but here's the other thing if I didn't love Jesse as much as I love Jesse if I didn't love my friend Rebecca if I didn't love you know my grandparents who passed away and my aunts and my uncles if I didn't love them this much I wouldn't feel this amount of pain and and that that equation that like. You know that way of being alive—that's very vulnerable. Making like knowing that one day I will be without people who are in my family, like my parents, who mean so much to me. Although they can live forever, I think that's, yeah, that's fine. of course they'd like to, and I'm sure they're planning on it. My great. mother's one <laughs> at my grandmother's funeral. My mother leaned over to me and said, "I'm never doing this to you." <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's amazing. And I was like, okay, great. Wow. So that's a great um, promise. So yeah, I so you know like in my. Father's been trying to talk to me a little bit about it. We argue about this thing that, like, I couldn't hear for a long time where he would say to me, like, you know, love is stronger than death because it still exists. You can still access the love after the person has passed on to whatever the next thing is, or maybe there isn't a next thing, but you can still access that feeling. And that conjures them, I think. Um, and that conjuring is not unlike the way we conjure people when we're not near them, or we conjure them when we are. And that, and that practice is one that makes you vulnerable because it subjects you to pain. But, yeah, what are you going to do?
2: Well, I mean, I think people do a lot of different things. I think some <laughs> people aren't. I think a lot of people, unfortunately... Aren't able to go deep and into their vulnerability and walk into the water mm. when it's they're in pain. It's very scary. Yeah. yeah, or access help from a from a therapist or even from a friend. And I think we're yeah. conditioned in the society, like we were chatting about before we started taping, that. Grief is this, like, big kind of, like, unknown scary blob. Death is this big unknown scary blob that, like, when it, you know, when it happens, I think a lot of us are just like, okay, we, we don't have time for this, or we can't do this, or if this isn't becoming, this isn't manly, right. or this is not okay, like, enough already, or I can't touch it because it hurts so much. And I think the thing that you're saying that I really respect and I hope that other people can connect with is that, like, just because it hurts just because it's terrifying and scary in a gigantic way. It doesn't mean you can't dive into it. You yeah. know what I mean? And I like the, me- the lightning metaphor and that mm-hmm. like it strikes and it's insane and then it disappears. And yeah. not, I mean, not that it
3: disappears. The the, oh, it leaves its mark, the
2: mark is, is still there, right? but the actual lightning does right. go away. Right. You know? And I think that like, if we can on this show, the point for me at least, and I believe for you too, mom is just like, reminding people of that, right? Like this terrible, awful, disgusting, horrible, beautiful experience that you have when you are in pain and grief. And most of the time it yeah. can come from like real death or loss, but from any and loss of anything, you yeah. know, really. I mean, it's very hard. Loss is very disappointing, you know? Yeah. And, but it's like, it's a part, you know, you actually make this other, a uh, beautiful metaphor about pizza that I'd like to read at the end, but <laughs> but you know it's part of a it's part of it's a slice of a pie. You know what I mean? Right. It's part of a whole oh, pie, yeah.
4: right? It's, Can I mention one thing now? Which, please, which I'm thinking about my my favorite person who died uh, day after Trump was elected, oh. Leonard Cone. The day oh. he he died, actually, the day that Trump was elected, yeah. and he said, "There is a crack. There is a crack in everything, and that's where the mm. light comes through." Right, and that's right. kind of what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It is true. It's totally totally beautiful.
2: You know, it's just I I just wish that we could all be okay with being afraid a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know. Uh I remember as a kid I would be really scared all the time that there was like someone going to that someone was breaking into the house like every night, you know. Yeah. And I was so scared and sometimes like when I was staying at your house I'd run into your room and I'd wake my parents up or whatever. And then um this kind of continued even to when I was, like, an adult. I would still mm. be really scared in my 20s. I would always, like, get up and look around and check in my house when I would come. And then I got in an accident. I got mm. in, like, a near-death accident and went off a cliff. Ooh. The worst thing happened. and exploded. I almost died. And I was never really – I mean, I still am, like, a little cautious. Like, mm-hmm. I was still hear something during the night. Like, I lock the doors and windows. But I w- I was never really, like, scared like that again after that, that someone was in the house. Because I had kind of seen – yeah. Real terror, and I realized that. Well, okay, I will probably get. You know what I mean? Like, right. I'll probably. I've gotten through all of these nights so far, and I'll probably get through all the nights to come. And I've seen right. kind of the worst thing that happened. So, I don't know. Sometimes going through that kind of thing can just.
3: Yeah. Well, once you, you know it and you've seen it, you know you know that there's not much that can be that can be done. Yeah. So, and you you still are, you know it's survivable. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You realize right. that it's survivable,
4: but you didn't. The fear makes us feel like. It's not survivable, right? Right. The
2: anticipation of yeah. grief almost is worse than actually going through it. Um, so, going back to the short story, um, I wanted to ask you, how important do you feel like a small good thing actually is? You know, we were talking earlier about a hug from a stranger, like, mm-hmm. or a, a warm roll. Like, how in your experience, how effective has that been in the grieving process?
3: Um, well, I think it's radically useful. I I don't even know that it needs to be attached to the grieving process, I think that it just is um, important to acknowledge each other as humans in whatever way you can. And, you know, I take the train... (laughs) Oddly, I take the train to therapy Monday and Thursday morning at rush hour, which is, like, mm-hmm. something I could probably switch. <laughs> yeah. And one thing happens, which is I run run to my friend, my friend, Roxana, often, which is really nice and wonderful. But another thing is I look around and everybody's on their phones, which is, like, you know, we're all kind of sick of this sort of thing. But yes. when I see people interact with each other outside of that isolation, I can see this connectivity bridge things That feel like um, differences that can't be bridged. And Mm. I don't know how to... um, I don't really know how to encourage people to do that more often. But it is something that happens in restaurants also. It's like those are places where people go to see each other, you know? And that um, I think is why I enjoyed them so much. But... Yeah, I think it's radically useful.
4: You know, I think the small things are about the kindnesses, mm-hmm. which yeah. is the compassion. I was thinking I've had to, i had to have some medical <clears throat> treatments lately, mm. and it's scary. You know, you're in a hospital setting, and it feels really frightening. And I'm so in awe of the professionals, the nurses, and the people that help. And it's the little kindnesses, the little putting their hand on your hand, yeah. or the little smile or the little understandings that make me feel so much better. Yeah. And I was thinking when you said that that life is about grieving. There's grieving. Yeah. It's not just our, a loss of a, somebody we love. Of course, there are losses and changes.
3: You know, with every change, there's loss, and yeah. there's change all the time. So right. we're always grieving. The other thing that just comes to mind is in the class at Rikers that I teach, um, or that I participate in. We make a magazine, but. Um, I noticed something that was interesting, which is that often the women, trans women, trans men and women in the women's facility who come to this class would carry this atomic fireball candy in their, like, bra or, like, tucked somewhere. Mm. And um, no matter, you know, like, somebody always has one, you know, or two or three or something. So at the beginning of class, after people kind of, like, people who are, like, in the worst possible situation, the most chaotic, the most violent, the most vulnerable, they carry this candy with them because somebody's going to ask them for it. Wow. And they're they're carrying it to give to somebody else because that they know more about kindness and um, what it means to have to combat, combat the ways that people will dehumanize their existence by doing tiny, careful things for each other. It's like... Really nice. You know, it just really is something that's, like, incredible. And that that changes somebody's day. Yes, it does. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely right.
2: That's incredible. That's yeah. really, really, really beautiful and sweet. Um, there's another line in your essay that you wrote. I'm not going to read the whole uh, paragraph, but uh, you write, there's a way of losing something while keeping it with you, which I loved, and I started to cry when mm-hmm. I read it because... Um, it summarizes the feeling that makes grief so beautiful and also frustrating at the same time. Yeah. Right? Like, So the way I interpret it, I'm like, you know, in the beautiful sense, the way, you know, you're losing something keeping with you, you lose someone, yet you keep their recipes or you keep their journals or you keep a piece of their clothing or you keep them in your heart, right? Yeah. But then for me, there's something about that that is also like deeply frustrating because Mm. they're with you, but they're just not the way you want, you know? And so, I don't know, it's like both How do you feel about that? Like, what did you? Yeah,
3: I think that's the thing that that me and my that my dad's been trying to help me understand, which is that I have to let go of that anger around what happened, or that I couldn't change it, or that I can't talk to Jesse or to my friend Rebecca or to Rachel or to my aunt Joanne, and I can't. But I can live with the memories I have of them. You know, and even in that sentence, I, I can wish that I had more memories. You know, like, that's the nature of this desire for more connectivity, for more love, for more of a chance to be with someone. But um, I... And the thing about it is I can never... I'm never... I, I don't... It's not weight. Carrying their memory is not weight. But it is something that I carry. And I don't want to lose it. But I also can't always bear it. So it's like this thing that is a constantly kind of changing and moving continual present thing
4: bittersweet
3: yeah the name of my
4: business is bittersweet ah. bereavement and counseling you know i wanted to also bring up i, I often think about the serenity prayer i think it's one mm. of the most powerful things to guide our life because it reminds us of what we can control and what we can't and that it yeah. really we're constantly trying to work on a, on understanding the difference yeah. So I think that's what you're really saying, Zara, is that we can control, you know, the ways that we hold on to the people that we love. And what you said before is you don't know what to call somebody after they die. Mm-hmm. I agree. I like to think of them as they are instead yeah. of they were. Yeah. So we do hold on to them yeah. in that way. But there's something we can have. We yeah. can have their presence you in have that their way. Physical their physical presence. Right. we can have it. It just is what it is. And you can have more memories.
2: You know, and new memories. Then right. that's frustrating. Except, I, you know, it's, fr- it's an
4: interesting thing. We were talking about continuing <clears throat> bonds last time, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what we're saying now. You know, what are the ways that we continue the connection? And um, I realize that at different stages of your life. So when you think about your father at different stages of your life, in a way, you are creating new memories mm. because yeah. you're different. You're at a different stage. Right. Yeah, that's
2: very interesting. So, I also really loved the pizza analogy. And you mentioned that Jesse's favorite food was pizza. And after he passed, you guys found yourselves eating a lot of pizza. Yeah. How did that, like, how did it, did it feel like you were honoring him? Did it feel like the only option? Did it feel sad at all? Was it,
3: I don't think it was anything that anybody could, I don't think there was a decision made, you know, like that. You just act. And in retrospect, I noticed that we were doing it. Yeah, um, but also, you know, to s- pizza is—we're in Roberta's pizza. Yes, um, <laughs> it's all around us. Pizza is a very comforting food, and it has a wholeness to it. You know, beyond the circle and the pieces that come together, and you know, there's a certain element of like satisfaction and like one thing. And when you're grieving, it's like impossible. You know, grieving doesn't even sound like the right word sometimes when you're like ragefully bereft or you're empty you know when you're empty because you're faced with something that you have to learn to accept and you don't you want to do any other thing you would do anything to not have to learn that and it's like how can you eat when you're faced with that and i think pizza is a good option because you just bite it and you don't have to think about (laughs) it (laughs) you bite (laughs) it you don't need a utensil it's It's right 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 right, you're you're not not mixing the perfect bite there's there's no thought right
2: yeah. And to mouth. Yeah. Totally. Well, I mean, you wrote, um, pizza was Jesse's food, a circle, a pie, a kind of savory cake, a shape made out of pieces, a beginning and ending, both an Ouroboro. And I really thought mm-hmm. that was just beautiful and a beautiful way to talk about, you know, food and how it can really just tie into exactly what we're talking about and really taking note of the actual item itself and then its effect. And I just think the analogy of it being pieces of whole is really quite beautiful. Um, So in our last chat, you, I had asked you what was your most comforting food Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and you had said, uh, Carolyn Fidenza's cockaliki soup. Oh yeah, that's good. And I had never had it before and I had never heard of it before And shortly after we met, I looked it up, I made it, and it was the first thing that I made for myself after my dad died. Like I wasn't able to cook or really eat for a long time, but when I finally Mm -hmm. got the energy to like make myself something, and it was the first thing I made, I made it for my really good friend who just, uh, his baby was born 15 weeks early. Oh, wow. And I was like, I know, Eureka, coffee, leaky soup. (laughs) And that is really like, that is
3: a magical It's soup. Yes, it is. It's delicious. a magical process. Mm. It's fabulous.
2: Yeah. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, it's, well, I use prunes, but it's dates, right? Dates Mm -hmm. and leeks and chicken, essentially. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah, it's really just gorgeous and so wholesome. Chicken soup. Cock-a-leaky. Yeah. (laughs) I think I've probably made it for you, too. I'm obsessed with it. Also, Um, it's
3: a funny thing to say. (laughs) Cock-a-leaky. It's fun. Anytime (laughs) you get
2: to say cock and leek in the same sentence. (laughs) Yep. Great. Mm. Um, okay, so in wrapping up, we kind of always ask everyone the same question. So if you're to think of being able to share a meal with someone who's important to you that's, you know, either past or it's been a heartbreak or something, someone that you're thinking of and channeling at this moment, if you could take the time to share a meal or cook something for them, what, what would that
3: look like to you? Hmm. Okay. Well... <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot and it's funny, it ties into your roast beef sandwich um, story, which is that my grandfather who was very dear to me, um, who was just so tolerant of me, I'm sure not of his direct children, but of me who would jump on top of him while he was sleeping <laughs> all the time in this chair that he slept in constantly. Um, I remember when he, you know, I think, he and my grandma anime lived to be 98, 99, I believe. Wow. And, um, watching them go through the process of anime passing before him was really heart wrenching, but he was really strong and was really like, I'm glad that it's happening this way. Cause I would never want to leave her here. Wow. Um, he also did this wonderful thing. We were visiting her in the, in the, um, nursing home once. And we turned a corner and he was wearing like a bomber jacket and he was a detective and he had, A cane at the time and he stopped dead in his tracks he had like a cap on he was very cool (laughs) and i was like what what uh uh-oh what and you know he was like nothing and then we got on the elevator and the elevator oh i should say there were like all these people at the nursing home lined up for lunch in the hallway so he stopped when we turned the hallway froze just kind of froze and i was like oh god and he was like it's okay let's get in the elevator we got in the elevator the door is closed and he said oh sorry annie it was just all those old people (laughs) Well, you know, he was like 20 years older than all of them. Um, But he, I remembered, I was just thinking about this. He would always make me a ham and cheese sandwich. And I remember when I went to visit him, um, when he was having a hard time moving around, he asked me if I was hungry and I said, oh, no, I'm fine. He was like, I think you're probably hungry. You should go make a sandwich. I wish I could make you a sandwich right now, but I can't. So I think you should go make a sandwich. And I went and I made it and I ate it and I felt... Uh, really grateful for that instruction. And he seemed really glad that I did it. So I would just make him a sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. That's awesome. Yeah.
2: It's really sweet. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I think like, um, talking about this and being so vulnerable to the world is a really big ask. And it's really you know also immediate and kind of unknown I think you know you're very open and you're writing and it's beautiful and it's inspirational Um, and just in who you are as a human Um, but there's something about just kind of coming on to a radio show and not necessarily knowing exactly what you're gonna be asked of and being Mm. able to be that vulnerable it's like a huge ask and we're extremely appreciative that you are willing to do that. And I think it'll hopefully really be helpful with other people who are trying to deal with these same kind of big issues and
3: questions. Yeah. And well, thank you so much for doing this. I think it's a really good idea and I'm grateful for it. Thank yeah. you.
2: Okay. Thanks. The best. Thank
4: you so Happy
2: much. Evening. Thanks. <laughs> Ciao. Hey Bobby, that was an amazing episode that we got to do with Anna. They're incredible and so wise and smart and eloquent, and I always love, I just always love having a conversation with them. How did you enjoy the episode?
4: I really appreciated listening to them. Yeah. Wonderful.
2: Yeah, it was great. So the takeaway this week, what I wanted to talk about on the After Forward was um, talking about the uh, short story writer, Raymond Carver. Mm. Um, because I loved the story, A Small Good Thing, which, she, which they referenced mm-hmm. in the episode. And uh, yeah, so a little bit about Raymond Carver. Raymond Carver was born May 25th, 1938 in Clatstain, Oregon, mm-hmm. um, and died August 2nd, 1988 in Port Angeles, Washington at age 50, so mm-hmm. quite young. Had you been familiar with Raymond Carver's work before this?
4: I can't say that I can re- recall books that I've read or stories i read, but I certainly heard the name. Okay. Yeah.
2: Um, so after graduating from Yakima High School in 1956, in 1956, Bobby was four.
4: That's <laughs> true.
2: A cute little four-year-old <laughs> you. I'm just picturing you. What were you doing at age four?
4: I was playing nurse. Oh, that's cute. In the neighborhood.
2: Oh my gosh, that's very cute. I had
4: a little nurse's outfit no! and a little nurse's bag. Yep. Oh no, that mm-hmm. is
2: painfully cute. Yeah. Um... Okay, so in 1956, after graduating high school, he was working with his father at a sawmill in California. Uh, and then in 1957, at age 19, which is the same age you got married for the first time, right? Yep. He married 16-year-old, problematic, although they did stay married for quite some time, Marianne Burke. Mm-hmm. Things were different back then. It was the 50s. People were getting yeah. crazy and marrying 16-year-olds. Um, their daughter was born that same year, so I guess maybe it was a marriage... If we're to speculate in the 50s, perhaps they had to get married because she got pregnant. Uh, and then they had a, a boy a couple year, like a year later. Um, he supported his family by working as a delivery man, janitor, library assistant, sawmill laborer. And Marianne worked uh, as an administrative assistant at a high school uh, and as an English teacher, a salesperson, and a waitress. Mm-hmm. In the year 1961, Carver first published his uh, first story called The Furious Seasons. And people compared it to like a Faulkner uh, Mm. story, the type of writing. Um, He was accepted into the famous Iowa Writers Workshop with a $1,000 fellowship in 1963 to 1964. And then he ended up kind of messing it all up and quitting. Oh, no. As we discover later on, I think a lot of this happened because he was an alcoholic, Uh a Uh severe alcoholic. Mm. Um, So he became a night custodian. They moved in the 60s to Sacramento. He becomes a custodian. He starts writing. He kind of does some janitorial work, and I'm picturing picturing him, like, mopping the floors and cleaning the toilets and then getting wasted. Again, this is speculation and writing, like, sitting on the bathroom floor in the middle of the night
4: or something. A creative sufferer. Exactly.
2: Um, By the 70s, by his own admission, he gives up writing and took up drinking full time. Finally, he dries up in 1977. He gets sober. He begins what he calls, quote, his second life. uh, Stops drinking June 2nd, 1977, with the help of AA. Excellent. Yeah. He divorced Marianne in 1982. And unfortunately, uh, she says that um, he was a very, very bad alcoholic and was abusive at times. Mm -hmm. So they got divorced. He, in 1977... um, starts uh, dating what he says is the love of his life Tess Gallagher who she was a poet and then in 1988 he dies of lung cancer on August 2nd Um, in the same year he was inducted to the American Academy of Arts and Letters he's buried at Ocean View Cemetery in Port Angeles, Washington and the inception on his tombstone reads and did you get what you wanted from this life even so I did and what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth.
4: That is poignant. Yeah, it is. Beautiful.
2: Um, and some of his works in uh, movies, which I thought was interesting. Um, the movie Shortcuts, directed by Robert Altman, Wonderful. was based on uh, nine Carver short stories and a poem. Mm. Shortcuts is, I remember being a great movie, but I don't remember it. Yeah. I, I recently realized that I have a terrible memory.
4: <laughs> Join the club. Well, you know Robert Altman and everything is just in in, in snippets and bits and yes. stories that intersect.
2: Right. And then um, Anna, they were saying that the small good thing that Lyle Lovett's character in, I can't remember what film they were saying it was in. Maybe it was Shortcuts or The Player? I think it might have been Shortcuts, actually. It would have oh. to be probably because it was based on this, that Lyle Lovett played a baker that was based on the short story Small Good Thing.
4: I can see him visually as the baker because yeah. I love I love it and I know. Uh, but I don't remember it being with shortcuts. But yeah, yeah.
2: Um, everything must go, directed by Dan Rush, two thousand and ten, starring Will Farrell, was based on Carver's short story. Uh, Why don't you dance? Mm. And then Birdman, which I really? loved really. Birdman was incredible. Um, directed by Alejandro Intaru. I can never remember how to Uh pronounce that because I'm bad at pronouncing. And memory, (laughs) apparently. Maybe they go hand in hand. Uh, Depicts the mounting of a Broadway production of What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, which was a collection of short stories written by Raymond Carver. Mm. And the film's main character, Regan Thompson, attributes his choice of acting as a profession to a complimentary note he once received from Raymond Carver, written on a cocktail napkin. Um, the film also preludes with Carver's poem, Late Fragment.
4: That's the poem you read which before? Which is the poem, yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Which is
2: written on his grave. Yeah.
4: yeah. Fantastic. Pretty interesting, that's so, right? That's really something.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a an interesting thing. I, you know, I always, I admire people in general who are more literary minded. I am a reader and I'm a writer, but, you know, when I sit down and speak with someone like Anna um who has that literary mind and is just...
4: In reference.
2: Yeah, and really has a good memory. Yes. And um just kind of lives and breathes literature and writing and poetry. Yeah. I really am in awe of people like that. Absolutely. Was, I felt like when re-listening to the episode, um, I just hear it in their voice. They have such a way of just kind of breathing that.
4: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Do well, you they get know, that? They know it. It's in their... In their structure. Yeah. But we all have different things in our structure. Yeah. Like I use metaphors a lot. I, I'm not literate myself. Yeah. But um, I love metaphors. So that's in my structure. And yeah. we all have different things. My friend Kathy has music in her structure. Right. She hears a, a, a song and every single word of it in her head, no matter what she's doing.
2: Right. That was something that, and I don't want to say serious, because I, I, I do think that Anna is serious, but I also think that they're very lighthearted and fun and, and silly and, and funny and joyous, but they're serious in the way of like in the way of being literary minded. And I thought that was why I kinda of also wanted to just pick up on that part. Because sometimes in these little afterwards we talk about, you know, the different foods or something fun or silly or in, yeah. in Nicole's case we talked about, you know, Indiana and foods of the Hoosier state. Right,
4: exactly. But I particularly like Late Fragment, that poem that yeah. you read. As a matter of fact, I put it up on my wall.
2: Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's and did you get
4: what you wanted from this life? Yeah. Beautiful.
2: That's a good question, right? Mm. Yep. I wonder how many I, I wonder how many of us do. And you know, it's only a certain amount of people when they die actually get to answer that question because a lot of death is sudden and you don't you know what I mean? So I think if you are dying of an illness, then you get the chance to actually really contemplate and think about that. But we
4: could also ask that question while we're living. Right. Um there's a wonderful book by Stephen Levine called One Year to Live. Yeah. And he is a Buddhist hospice professional, and his wife was terminally ill from cancer. And he wrote this book. As it turned out, she didn't die. Mm. And when my friend Emily, who was dying from breast cancer about 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, um, we read the book together. And it really wasn't about if you have one year to live. It's the question that you ask yourself, am I getting what I want from this life? How would you answer it? Well, in many ways, I am. How about you? I
2: actually think definitely. And that, I don't think that always means that, like, life is going exactly the way you want or that you're super happy all the time. I think it's when I'm I'm mm. actually just thinking about it right now. I think what I want from life is to constantly be challenged and stimulated and surprised. And I think I've had that. And I hope I have a lot more of that because I'm only 35, but, <laughs> you know, for whatever.
4: Yeah you know. And for me, it's about being yourself. Um, I give my clients each year on New Year's, I give them a journal Mm -hmm. and I always put a different quote on it. And the one I have this year is be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So I feel like for me, that answers the question. You know, if every day I feel like I'm closest to myself. Yeah. Yeah. Like that.
2: That's a great question. I think to check in with, like as a daily practice, if possible, you know, I've been trying to personally do that more often. I'm like, what daily practices can I, you know, gratitude is one that's great. Thankfulness, remind, you know, self love. But I think that, um, asking, checking in with yourself, like, am I getting what I want out of this life? Right. Is kind and, of and am practice. I authentic?
4: So I feel yeah. authentic in this moment. Sure.
2: Yeah. Interesting.
4: That's mindfulness. Yeah. Remembering in any moment right. where, you are, where you are and who you are. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness is a, not new concept at all but trending upward and very interesting and very useful. Thank goodness. Yeah. So thank you to Anna Dunn for inspiring this conversation too even yes. after they are they've joined us we are still I found myself the rewards.
4: very stimulated in her in their conversation. Very yeah. stimulated.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh Anna and thank you all of you for listening and Check out the short story works of Raymond Carver and we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.